Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you're listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising happy, healthy humans is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Deborah Farmer Chris. Deborah is a writer, a teacher, a parent educator, and a school administrator. She writes for PBS Kids, MindShift, which is an NPR learning blog, and Intrepid, which is an educational news. She's the author of a book called I Love You All the Time, which helps parents and caregivers communicate the one message children most need to hear, that they are unconditionally loved. Deborah has two kids of her own, and as you can imagine, they test her theories about child development all the time. She's passionate about providing nuggets of practical wisdom that help kids and families thrive. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I spent some time reading the wonderful articles that you write for these multiple places, and um, I was struck by how how good you are at communicating things that can be kind of high level, researchy into a language that parents can like take it and use it. So um, I'd love for you to just share what is your philosophy on parenting and how did you get into this work? What juices you about it? So I began as an elementary school teacher and then middle school teacher. And I even dabbled in high school teaching and some school administration along the way. And at some point I realized in getting um, an advanced degree that rather than school administration, I really loved the work of working with families and parents, that that was the intersection that I loved. And I was very good at helping parents understand their kids and partnering with them. So I went back and got a degree in counseling psychology. And that has you know, led to, um, I love writing. And so I've been engaged as a parent educator now for about a decade in various forms. And I think really my, my core mentor in all this work is Fred Rogers mm. because he understood the dignity of the young child. And I think as parents, you know, kids are not people in progress. They're not many people, they're people and their emotions are valid. Their ups are valid. Their downs are valid. And our job as parents, if I really want to boil it down is to really accompany them as we try to help them become their best selves. And I think first and foremost, that means providing this just well of unconditional love. And they know that home is a safe place as much as possible and that they are loved despite all the ups and downs and even because of the ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, it's helping them develop some of those habits and skills that it's going to help them thrive as they're older. And, you know, parenting is the long game. So everything, every habit takes time. So when we try to teach them responsibility or empathy or compassion or even how to make their better do their chores. They're going to be ups and downs. They're going to be good days and bad days, but we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for the progress um, over time. And so really, I think parenting is not about being dictatorial nor letting them run the roost. It's, it's working together and being that loving, constant presence that we know helps kids thrive. What you said about really meeting the child where they're at, I think that's so important And I think that as we as parents grow in our own journey of raising children, we see that um, our kids aren't perfect. And 
I think one of the things that strikes me is that it's helpful to look at ourselves and say, neither are we. We're not perfect humans. And when we can be with our children and we can tell them that and we can meet them in the middle, respecting where they're coming from, communicating our own experiences and being able to say you're sorry, being able to say, wow, I'm not doing this very good right now. You know, give me five minutes. How can I regroup and help you? I think that can be really helpful. So I know that you spend a lot of time sharing really helpful strategies about how to do that. And you write a lot about you have to be able to identify your emotions and accept all those emotions for what they are and for being as valid as any other. So could you share a little bit more about that particular concept? Yeah. So emotional literacy, as I like to think of it, because it's a literacy like reading or even mathematics, uh, is something that starts young with developing a, an emotional vocabulary. And, you know, helping kids name their emotions and then from there normalizing that they're not strange or um, there's something wrong with them if they're having these big emotions and then navigate is really, I just think, a core piece of work as parents. And, you know, part of that starts with just being able at an early age to rather than shut down how they're feeling to get curious about the big emotion that they're having, because behavior is communication for our kids. So, you know, whether they are tantruming in the store when they're three or they're slamming the door when they're 13, they're having an outsized emotion. And whereas adults often, we might want some space for most kids, you know, a big emotional reaction is an invitation to approach them, to come closer because they, it feels scary. They want that help. And so, you know, starting at a young age, being working on that emotional vocabulary of, you know, even, oh, look, you know, a small child, your, um, you know, you, your friend came over, you're so excited, it's been a while, or, you know, your, your sister knocked over your tower, you're mad, that must be so frustrating. So you can start with those basic emotions like mad, sad, uh, happy and scared, right? Those four basic ones. And then begin to expand because, you know, is, is it angry? Is it irritated? Is it enraged? Is it scared? Is it confused? Is it lonely? And Lisa Barrett Feldman has this great concept called emotional granularity, which is basically that the more pinpointed we can get in describing our emotion, the uh, the better it makes us feel and the better we are able to navigate it. So, you know, if that huge feeling of rage you discover is actually a feeling of nervousness because the doctor hasn't called you back and it just exploded um, in your day, then identifying that helps you have a plan of action. And, you know, just one example of that and how this can work with even very young children. You know, my oldest daughter, she was two and a half when my uh, son was born, her brother, and I had an unexpected C-section. So I was in the hospital for longer than anticipated. And when I came home, she wouldn't look at me. She wouldn't talk to me. She ran away. And for about three days, she basically wanted nothing to do with me and the baby. And finally, she had this enormous tantrum that just was um, almost legendary in her household now. And after she'd worn herself out, she sat on the stairs and I was trying to identify it. I said, are you, are you mad that mommy was away? Are you mad about the new baby? And she just kind of looked at me sullenly. And then my husband said, are you scared? And she started to cry and she came and she crawled into my lap. And it was, it was the power of finding the right word 
to describe even for a two and a half year old, how she was feeling that enabled her and us to kind of then figure out what she needed next. I was talking to a group of middle school students about this idea. And one of them said to me, you know, one thing I wish my parents knew is that almost every time I'm mad at them, it's because I'm stressed or scared about something else. And I just thought like, that's a really profound statement is that it comes out as this, but if you start getting that emotional vocabulary and probing and getting curious, you often find that underneath there's actually a very different emotion. And often there's a scared kid that is looking for support. Yeah. And you know what? I love what you said about being curious. Cause that's one of, I think one of my fundamental beliefs is that who doesn't love to feel like someone in their life is curiously interested in them and really wants to get to the root of not just who they are, but what makes them tick. You know, what you said about naming it is so important. I'm curious what you would say about the middle or early high school kid that doesn't want to talk about it, that does the like cross the arms, sit back in the chair and not say anything. You know, at that age, few thoughts. One, it's really, really helpful if you have a tween or teen to make sure there are other adults in their life besides you, mm-hmm. um, because they need you. They really need you. They need you there, even if they're not talking, but sometimes it's the coach or the mentor or the neighbor or the aunt or uncle who's able, because it's a little less pressured to have some of that come out. So like forming a bit of that village is really important. Um, and I, I knew it when I was a middle school teacher that often you know, kids would come and tell me things and I'd partner with their parents or even the parents would say to me, can you talk to my daughter about blank? Cause she's not listening to me and we could partner. I'd also say that, you know, sometimes those moments like the, where they want to talk about it, they can't happen if we're not making time for them. Like it's not going to happen on our timetable as parents, right? It's not gonna be like, all right, we need to sit down and talk about your emotions now. Like their threat level is going to go up. They're going to get nervous. They're going to have stress hormones flooding and they're going to do fight or flight and your kid's going to run away or they're going to yell at you. But it might be that you're shooting hoops with your kid or it's, you know, um, bedtime and you go back in for one more thing and the lights are off or, you know, driving in the car, right. And, um, to go do something and you're not making eye contact or you're saying, come with me with a walk with a dog and recognizing that it's not on your timetable, but if you're there and you're present, it'll eventually come out. And sometimes it comes out because they, they'll frame it as I want to talk about what happens with my friends, right. It'll depersonalize it. Sometimes it can happen if you're ta- watching like Survivor together and somebody betrays somebody else and a conversation happens. But just them knowing that you're there can be really powerful. And it can also be helpful sometimes just to say, be tentative about it, right? To honor them of, you know, I've noticed you seem a little upset recently. If you ever want to talk about it, I'm here. That can be even a note like on the pillow or on their bathroom mirror, or, you know, it seems to me that I haven't heard you talk much about a couple of these friends just checking in to see if things are okay. So it doesn't feel like they're being interviewed, but they know you're paying attention. And sometimes I recently had a conversation with my daughter. I asked a question like that. And three days later on her own, she answered the question, but it had to be on her timetable. Yeah. So it's permission, you know, it's permission to be with your feelings. And, you know, it makes me think that one, not all kids are going to be like you personality wise. Right. And then on top of that, they're going to change and develop in the way that they are able to, to express themselves. And we have to meet them where they're at. 
Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily fix it. Like, I don't know that I tell everybody exactly how I feel all the time in the moment that they probably want to hear it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and sometimes you have to cool down. I think of like, I always talk about anger, like it's a fan, you know, yeah. because you don't turn a fan off and it just stops. Right. You turn the fan off and over time, maybe then the anger fan is completely stopped. Um, I think for kids, they need that. They need that little bit of space to process and to just be with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't even want to try to solve problems until uh, the expression I love is to settle your glitter because I, you know, make those glitter jars with my kids. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've even made them with middle school students. They love the metaphor, too. Like you shake them up and you wait for it to settle. But, you know, when when your child is having a stress response and who knows what's triggering it. Right. And that's part of the, you know, getting curious later. But in the moment, doesn't matter what triggered it. It has to settle down before their prefrontal cortex comes back online. Yeah. And so it may be the cup of tea, the walk around the block, putting on a good song, but it's very hard to problem solve when they, you know, they come and they get in the car and they're crying after school and you're them, you flare up and, and you might hear something about a teacher and you instantly want to text, you know, email that teacher and you get angry. You need to give them that time to like settle, get a snack, get hydrated, those things they need to do to settle the glitter. And then maybe the problem is totally solved at that point. Often it is. Or then maybe you can listen and, you know, see if you can problem solve together. And sometimes listening is just the thing that solves it. But, you know, jumping in when they're hot is rarely effective. And we know that you can't reason with like a, you know, the, the tantruming three-year-old in Target, but we think we should be able to reason with our 15-year-old son or daughter. But it's the same situation. If they are in a state of kind of stress arousal, their prefrontal cortex just isn't processing the same way. You have to allow like the glitter to settle before jumping in next. And the hard part there as parents is when they're inflamed, it triggers us and we get inflamed. And then instead of the glitter settling, we've just shaken up the bottle some more, you know, and we beat ourselves up. We all do it. Um, you take a deep breath, but that's a big task as parents is how do I give them space to have their feelings without it erupting my own? Yeah. Um, that takes a lot of self-compassion because yeah. that's not an easy process. <laughs> yeah. And it's a skill, right? sure. It's something you develop over time. Yeah. It makes me think about, it makes me think about kids of different ages. Cause I know that as teenagers get older, they're going to be less expressive and they might not even show it in their body language as much. You know, I loved what you said about spending time together. Um, I have a couple of kids myself and I, one in particular will really only talk about things once I'm engaged in a relationship with them, they're not going to come home and tell me what happened at school. And if I ask them, they might not tell me and my kids are older now, but back then. Yeah. However, if I just were with them, I just spent time with them, went to the coffee shop to do homework, found some way to just be present with them, then they would share. So it feels like we really need to navigate paying a lot of attention. And that's another big task for a parent is to, to separate from maybe things that are upsetting or triggering to them and pay attention to what's going on in their kids and not take it personally. You know what oh, I mean? Right. Because that's the first place we go is to take it personally. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other tips about how parents can really be engaged, maybe even when their kids are misbehaving? Because it's a balance, right? We have to give them space, but we're, we're still there confident. We're still there to kind of guide them and teach them. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you have some standards and some values and some rules around the house and at the same time, honor them and give them the space they need? You know, I was talking to Michael Reichert, who's, who specializes in boys um, education. And he was saying that, you know, he used the phrase limit, listen, limit. 
or listen limit one of the other but, but the idea is that you listen to the emotion that's there you reflect it you need to limit the behavior right like i hear you you're frustrated i can't let you hit your sister slamming doors it's not doesn't fly in this house but i get that you're upset so it's it's acknowledging and validating the emotion limiting it and then there may be a second round of emotions that come up from the limits and listening to those too but part of it is you know and again this is hard parenting advice it seems so simple but this is the stuff that I don't think our parents always did particularly well because they weren't raised that way themselves, right? Is to be able to, to kind of be the calm in the storm, right? To, to be able to model the self-regulation and say, I, I see you're upset by this, right? If you can just say, I, I, my go-to phrase is often I'm noticed. Like, look, I notice that things are tough right now. I, I can see, I can see that really frustrated you. I can see why, you know, you're yelling at your sister. That was that must have really bothered you. You know, I can't let you hit her or I can't let you blank. You know, um, again, I'm dealing with slightly younger ones here. Whereas yeah. you're older, I can't let you do this because that's not back to inductive parenting. That 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 will hurt you and them. And you're not that type of person. But I understand the emotion behind it. And so it's that thing of saying, otherwise, you know, I think both the kids and us conflate the emotion and the behavior and the unspoken implicit message is that the emotion is wrong because you're linking being mad and then maybe them acting out being mad and all of it is bad. And so therefore being mad is bad or being sad, right? If we, if we tell them too quickly, like, you know, come on, you know, stop crying. You somehow make them feel embarrassed for that. Then they link those things, those emotions, mm-hmm. because those I think we all know intellectually, like there are no good or bad emotions, right? We have all these human emotions, but we act like there are bad emotions. I mean, if you ask kids, they think if I'm mad, I get in trouble. And I think most of us growing up often had that sense too, that, you know, there was at least one emotion in your family of origin that was probably fairly taboo. Um, and depending on your culture or your family background, it may have been different emotions, but we bring that to the table with our own kids. And I think not only believing that all emotions are okay, but actually like working on that with our kids, that the full range of human emotions is fine. What we do with those sometimes needs limits because you're a decent human being who wants to be a certain way. And sometimes even just saying to kids, you know, it must have felt pretty pretty yucky to lose control like that. We know, can we talk about how to help you not do that the next time? And almost always the answer is yes, right? It doesn't feel good to lose control, um, whether that is an anger one or just a, a panic, right? The stress, like it probably didn't feel good to freeze up like that or to feel so panicked before the test. I get that, you know, can we talk about strategies the next time? It'll probably take some practice, but we'll get there together. You know, you said something kind of in the beginning and when you were talking that I thought was really important. You can't do this because it could be hurtful to you and others. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that one of the things that really opens the door with kids is to take it away from them and talk about the impact brings in that piece of compassion and allows you to problem solve with them in a way where they're doing the thinking and you're not telling them exactly what to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to this, uh, you know, it's a form of discipline called inductive discipline, where it's this idea that you're constantly linking their choices with the consequences, the natural ones. Um, And this, you know, when they do the research, they show that this is the most instrumental in helping kids develop empathy, generosity, and kindness. Mm -hmm. So that rather than just saying, don't hit, 
you say, you know, we don't hit this family because it hurts other people. And that's why your sister's upset. Or rather than saying, you know, I told you 23 times to pick up your Lego, say, you know, I stepped on one of these Legos yesterday and it really, really hurt. And I know you didn't mean to hurt me, but that was the outcome. Do you think we can work on a system together? Or rather than, you know, watch your mouth, young lady, if it's more along the lines of, I, I know you're upset, I hear it, but that type of language hurts my feelings. I'm going to help you. We've got to honor each other's feelings. And it's this, it can be really empowering because, you know, I think kids sometimes feel like they don't have a lot of control on their lives. And so actually knowing that their choices affect us, one, it's true, it's real. And if we don't want to raise children who are you know, mean to others and obtuse, that's important. But it's also on the other side, right? They can also see that when they compliment a friend or when they hold the door open for a stranger, that that is powerful too, right? That every, all the choices that we make have these ripple effects. And that's exciting for kids who I think sometimes feel a little bit powerless. Yeah, it's so important. You know, it kind of goes back to what you said about it being a safe harbor. And I know that you've played both roles. You know, you've been in like the teacher position and the parent position and in other administrative positions where the roles can feel slightly different because at home, if you can't be yourself and be accepted, be loved and listened to at home, then it leaves a kid with that feeling of where else am I going to get that? So I think we have a responsibility to really help them do that. And maybe you can share a little bit about what you've seen. I, I feel like when you model this for your children, they're better able to do that. But beyond that, they're able to do that with their own friends. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, you know, yeah. that modeling piece and that teaching them to self-advocate is really important. Yeah. I think sometimes we, we feel like we want to present kind of a, a perfect face for our kids. I'm not going to talk about the tough stuff. I'm not going to talk about if I had a bad day or a mistake I made. And then of course, it's not like they don't see our struggles. We blow up. We have a bad morning. We lose, we lose it at bedtime when they're uh, not going to bed. They see the, the struggles that we're having, but we're not always good about talking through. And I think the great thing about just practicing talking about our emotions is this is a really simple strategy, right? You don't have to have any type of special degree to just practice saying, I had three extra projects at work today and I got really tired and I got a little bit nervous that I wouldn't finish everything. And that's why, you know, I'm, I have to go and finish after dinner and I'm feeling a little rushed, but I really want to spend this time with you. Or, um, you know, this morning when I yelled at you as we were getting out because you couldn't find your shoes and I was running late, I had a meeting at work I was feeling nervous about. And I want to apologize and just let you know that have you ever had that feeling of being nervous about something? And then you know, it almost puts them in the role of being able to share or sometimes to say, you know, I'm feeling a little nervous about this podcast I'm going to be on. Do you have any advice for me? And like put them in the role of being able to share some thoughts with you. I mean, my kids are great tonight. I, they're downstairs in, in the sunroom. So I'm heading up and they said, good luck, mom. Just be yourself. <laughs> it's this sense of talking about the ups and downs of your day um, and even those bad moments. And I'll just share, there was a one simple strategy if you have younger ones, although it works for older ones too, which is sometimes if you ask how was your day, they're just going to say fine. And I asked the middle schoolers, like, why do you say that? And they're like, well, I don't want to be grilled. But also, as one said, I don't know, a lot happens in a day. Like, what am I supposed to say, right? It's like there were ups, there were downs. And so when my kids were young, we began to uh, share a, a yay, an oops, and a blah. Um, and it was a great way to kind of acknowledge that days had all three of them. And so, you know, would just say, like, who wants to share a yay today? Like something good that happened. 
And an oops was a mistake you made, which is really good if you have perfectionist kids like to celebrate it. Like you, you got a D on the Spanish quiz. Hooray, it was an oops, right? It's almost like normalizing it. Right. And a blah might just be like an unexpected thing. You didn't like, I was exhausted or somebody said something mean or um, I had a you know a pop quiz that I wasn't ready for. It just normalizes that days have all of these emotions. Mm-hmm. And I, I would discover, especially with my son, is that sometimes when he wanted to share something that happened, usually at bedtime, he would ask me first, mom, did you have any blahs today? Oh, and you know, it'll be every once in a while. And I'd say, yeah. And he'd be like, okay, here was mine. But it's like, he wanted me to share mine first um, yeah. to kind of normalize that that was to give him permission in some ways to share his. Right. To talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. We used to do a good and a bad, and I wish it happened at dinner time. Mm, oh, I love that. So your, your words are a little bit more fun and spicy. I think <laughs> I love that. That's fun. Even as my kids got older, um, sometimes they would pull me in at bedtime because it was just, everything was done and yeah. they could just talk and be themselves and then go to bed. So and when the lights are out too, it's like, it almost makes it safer sometimes yeah. Yeah. to share when it's a little bit dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And physical touch, you know, rub their back and just be present with them. I think yeah. like that. You know, one of the things that I read about in in some of your blogs was was conversations about anxiety. And I bring that up because one of Penn's initiatives is stress and anxiety. We do a stress and anxiety conference every year. In fact, it's it's coming up here in this January. And I liked how you talked about it because again, it was that conversation of anxiety is a normal behavior. And in fact, you can make anxiety productive for you. I think that's so critical right now. It's we're living in this, I have stress and anxiety age where kids just talk about that all the time. And what would you share with parents about how you view stress and anxiety and strategies they can have to help their children's navigate children navigate how that's going to present in their life? Mm -hmm. You know, I I like the phrase by Lisa Damore that we have kids now who are stressed about being stressed and anxious about being anxious. And I've shared that phrase with, with teenagers and they laugh. They know what I'm talking about, right? It's almost like um, preemptive stress. Like I'm already stressed about next week, which might be stressful or even the reverse of that. I've had some uh, students come in during the college process recently and say, things feel smooth. Like I'm stressed that I'm not more stressed. So it's almost become this cultural piece of, you know, is whether it's too much or too little, like it's, Stress is worth being stressed over. And so I often pose a question to uh, adolescents, which is, do you believe that stress can be your friend? And they say, no, for them, it is the enemy. And the problem with that is that nobody leads a stress-free life, that it is part of the human condition that you're going to get anxious and stressed about things because it's inherently designed to protect us. And so part of what I like to do for parents and for students is to just demystify what's happening in the brain because when it's happening, when they're feeling that sense of panic, they, it can feel overwhelming or like something's wrong and just letting them know how normal this is. That if something is coming at you and you perceive that your, your brain, this kind of primitive part of your brain perceives that it's a threat, it's designed to do something quickly to protect you, right? So if a train is coming towards you, you don't wanna look and calculate the speed and velocity and what direction you should move. No, your body is going to bypass that. And you know there's gonna be the fight, the flight or the freeze. And hopefully in that situation, you're gonna run away, you're gonna flee. And your brain is there is, is to help you there. So this adrenaline rush 
is, you know, before you have a performance, like you want a little bit of those offstage jitters to create that onstage energy. And you don't want your favorite sports being to be too calm before they go onto the field because that adrenaline is designed to actually improve performance, right? You start to breathe a little more rapidly to increase the oxygen. You get that strength. We've all had that experience of suddenly being able to run a little bit faster because we're nervous than we could before. So in some ways, stress is a bit of a superpower because it's designed to protect us. And when you can just explain, like, you know, your amygdala kind of sends these signals out, it's kind of like the fire alarm, like, all right, I'm ready to act. You got to get out, be safe. But then you want to be able to evaluate, okay, is this really a fire or is this a false alarm? Is this just the popcorn going off and, you know, in the, in the faculty room that's, that's turning on the fire alarm. And that's what your prefrontal cortex is for, right? So it's kind of like, okay, I'm feeling this. Let me pause and try to figure out why I'm feeling this. And, and sometimes, you know, you feel it. I actually asked kids, like, one of the reasons you feel stressed sometimes is because you really care about something, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't care about an audition, you're not going to feel stressed about it necessarily, right? If you just don't, sometimes you're nervous about something because it matters to you and it can signal to you that something matters to you. And so there's, there's this fascinating study done, an anxiety response in the body and the excitement response is actually like identical if you hook yourself up to biometrics. So they both increase, you know, release the same hormones, both increase heart rate and breathing rate. The only real difference is the story we tell ourselves in our Mm -hmm. brain. And a lot of that has to do with prior experience. So if you have two kids about to go on stage and one has had a wonderful experience the last time and one forgot their lines and felt really embarrassed, one's gonna interpret that nervousness as excitement and one's going to interpret it as, as fear and anxiety. And so this uh, research study, what they did is they took a group of people and they, they had to go sing, don't stop believing karaoke in front of a group, right? Cause that's like triggers lots of anxiety. One group did nothing. That was a control group. The other had to say to themselves, I'm really excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. And those who just use that self-talk of I'm excited, enjoyed it more. And actually their voice control was stronger. They performed better. And so that idea of helping them refrain, like, yeah, of course you're nervous before this, because this is your chance to go and show. And that's a really normal feeling. And here are some breathing exercises you could use. But the truth is it's okay that you're having some of that feeling and that like normalizing the stress response makes it a little bit less scary. One of the things I say a lot is it would be weird if you didn't feel that way. Yeah. Like embrace it. Cause that'd be strange if this didn't matter to you. I basically ask everybody I interview this question because I think it's so fascinating to hear what people have to say, especially people who have really been in the world with young people and families If you could talk a little bit about what you think parents and professionals who work with young people, what do they need to do to really show up for kids? Part of what we need to do is to get honestly curious about the kids in front of us, not the kids we think we have or the kids we wish we had, but the kids who are actually there. It's very easy, I think, as a teacher, you know, it's, you you have the students who do everything you say and and, um, you know, get all their homework in, but the ones who are really fun to teach sometimes are those you have to like solve it and figure it out and make the connection. And it takes work and it takes effort and they appreciate 
when somebody takes the time and they can sniff it out. I mean, I like to say that, you know, kids are really great anthropologists. They have a really good, like they're watching us. They're, um, this is why teaching middle school can be so intimidating for people is because like their, their BS radar is like way up there, right? Like they are looking and they're like, do you like middle schoolers or don't you? And if you don't like you're done. (laughs) And so part of what I try to do with my kids and any kid I teach is to just let them know I'm glad they're there. Like just as a baseline, right? So if they come in late, it's like, I'm just so happy you're here. Thanks for being here today, right? Not where have you been? One of my favorite parenting quotes is from Toni Morrison, where she talks about, you know, does your face light up when you see your kids? Mm. And and actually I thought it was when you see your kids, but the full quote is your kids or anybody else's children. This idea of when they walk into the room, Are you making your body language, forget what you're saying. Does your body language say, I'm glad you're here. And I think that was the magic of Mr. Rogers is that I grew up with Fred Rogers, right? As a young kid. And you just felt through the screen that he was glad you were there. Like Mm -hmm. he was looking at you. He was present. It's, it's a wonderful thing for a kid to feel like, wow, she, she likes me, you know, or he likes me. That's a really wonderful feeling. And that's a gift we can give to our kids, but also to our neighbor's kids, to our kids' friends, so that you want your home to be the place where your friends, kids' friends can come to. And so if they walk in the door and you smile, you're like, thanks for coming over. It gives that just instant gift that they're valued and that, that this is a safe place. And so part of showing up is just making that eye contact and smiling and saying, I'm glad you're here. Oh, I love that. You know, <laughs> while you were talking, it, it made me remember a story from when I was raising my kids, because I think this is also additive. Like when you're doing this with your kids or children that are in your life over a period of time, it becomes really part of your relationship. And as my kids grew into being teenagers, our home was often a home that the kids wanted to be at in part because they did feel so welcome. They had their own space and they felt welcome to be themselves. And it got to the point where one of my kids had a friend that would leave the grocery list on the refrigerator for us. (laughs) It was so funny, but it was like, this is what we're used to having here. Cup of noodles, (laughs) some Gatorades. I like You're out of Doritos. (laughs) Exactly. I liked it because it was such a simple representation of how comfortable he felt saying that and knowing that we would go buy a cup of noodles and Doritos and Gatorade. It was a special thing for us. We've had a great conversation about all of this. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with today? Love to hear any other kind of closing thoughts. I think I'll just add one closing thought about self-compassion because we are all going to have, as you said in your intro, um, we're going to have bad days. And one of the strategies that Kristen Neff, who's the major researcher on self-compassion shared with me was that think about how you would talk, like if a friend came to you and shared everything you were feeling, right? Um, I yelled, you know, I was late today. I yelled at my kids. I totally lost it. My partner, what would you say to your friend? And like, you would be supportive and you'd say, we all have days like that. I totally get it. You've been under a lot of pressure recently and we would feel better because we would have been heard that if we can be that friend to ourselves, that ends up being very powerful because our self-talk can be very negative and our kids' self-talk can be very negative, right? The things they say to themselves are much harsher than what we're going to say to them, right? If they make a mistake, 
they're going to beat themselves up more than, you know, our reprimands are going to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes, especially when I'm talking to a teenager and they're sharing about what a kind of tough day they're having or a tough time, I say, you know, if a friend were telling you this, what advice would you give to them in the same situation? And when they start to talk, they start to relax because it it just depersonalizes and it reminds them, you know, that we, we're all deserving of that compassion. And so I think as parents, one, it's it's really good if you can find that other friend in your life who can be the real, you know, whether it's a, a sister or a neighbor who can play that role. But we also need to play it for ourselves because it's good for our kids to see us working through tough emotions and then forgiving ourselves. That's a beautiful reminder. Thank you. So what is the best way for the audience to reach out to you? So if you go to uh, parenthood365.com, so as in 365 days a year, parenthood365, from there, you can sign up for my newsletter, uh, follow on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, but from there, you can find all the different social channels. Wonderful. And watch out for her blog because I read and read and read, and there's so many good nuggets in there for you. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you again for being here. I think that, you know, this is a conversation that is foundational to communication, to being in relationship and to really supporting our kids into growing up and being healthy, happy humans that know how to navigate the world. The world is a crazy place. And I think what you're sharing is a real gift to the world. So I appreciate your contribution to Penn and to the people who will listen. We'd also like to take just a minute to thank our sponsor. One of our sponsors for our upcoming stress and anxiety symposium is the Hope Coalition of Boulder County. And they focus and support depression awareness and suicide prevention. They developed out of the parent engagement network as their own separate nonprofit um, and do wonderful work. So if anyone is interested in getting more information about depression awareness and suicide prevention, um, you can find them at Hope Coalition of Boulder County. Also, if this conversation inspired you today, you can always go to our website, which is www.penpenbv. Org, and there's places for you to get involved, to see what our calendar looks like, or to make a donation, either as a monthly gift or a one-time donation or a sponsorship. And we'd love to have you back for more of these conversations. We hope that these conversations really do fill your parenting well and prepare you for some of the, the gifts and the joys and the challenges that you're going to face along the way. So it's an honor to have you with us here today, Deborah, and it's an honor to have any of our listeners who have taken the time to be here as well. Until next time, happy parenting.